Amen. May God make that true of us as we approach his word, not looking with intimidation to what the world thinks of us, but uh, looking with our vision totally fixed on God and his glory. Uh, in your bulletin, page 17, is the reading of the scripture, but the reference is slightly wrong. It's Leviticus 19, and uh, verses 2, 3, and 32. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And verse 32, You shall rise before the gray-headed, and honor the presence of an old man, and fear your God. I am the Lord. Father, as we come to your word, we do so with hearts desiring to submit to it. And if in any way our flesh uh, rears its ugly head, our pride rears its ugly head, I pray that you would subdue it under the feet of Jesus Christ and enable us to be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth, and we love it, and yet we want to love it more, and we want to submit to it more, and we want to grow in conformity to it more. And so I pray that as I bring your word, I would faithfully teach it. You would bring to my mind any things that I have uh, uh, not uh, thought through uh, correctly, that you would keep me from preaching in error, and enable all of us, Father, to rejoice in your blueprints that you have given in your scripture. Bless this, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I was uh, commuting back and forth to work two weeks ago. I was listening to a marvelous sermon by Dr. Joe Moorcraft on the biblical philosophy of work. And it was fantastic. I love Dr. Moorcraft's sermons. Uh, he's one of my favorite preachers. But during a really small section in that sermon that dealt with how communism destroyed the biblical work ethic, he mentioned one of the things that America and communism have in common is that they despise the fifth commandment. Even if they say they don't, they hate the fifth commandment, especially as it's worked out in other authorities and our submission to uh, those authorities. He pointed out that where there is a, a breakdown of God's normal authority structures in society, almost always there's something else that comes in its place. It's a radical submission to state authority. There's an accumulation. You can't ever rob authority from one jurisdiction without it going to another jurisdiction. It's just the way things are. But what was shocking to me, and it should not have been shocking to me, but it still was, what was shocking to me was how boldly he used the terms from the larger catechism of superiors, inferiors, and equals. He said, and I quote, all of us are superiors to somebody, and all of us are inferiors to somebody, and all of us are equals to somebody, and when you try to blot out that hierarchy in culture and in work, it falls apart like in the Soviet Union. Now, just hearing him using those terms in our egalitarian, saturated society was shocking to my ears, and I thought as I was listening to that, yeah, this is biblical, but if it's shocking to my ears, how much more so would it be to the average Christian out there? This is really a topic that we need to carefully and prayerfully be thinking about and be applying and discipling our children, we do not tend to think of superiors and inferiors, but we should. The Bible talks about this a great deal. Uh, you will notice that the Dykstras and the Simmons and others use language of honor, uh, of respect, for example, for pastors and for deacons and for uh, those who are older than them. And, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, they're good models of that. And our culture's rejection of the honor due to the elderly can be seen in so many different ways. Sometimes it is subtle. A young man was asked by a widow to guess her age, and he hesitated, and he was obviously very uncomfortable doing this, until she said, come on, you, you should have some idea. 
And he answered, I have several ideas. The only trouble is that I hesitate whether to make you 10 years younger on account of your looks or 10 years older on account of your intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhat safe answer that he gave. But it illustrates how easy it is for people to want the honor that comes with age, but not to want to get older or to be considered to be old. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And this confusion over what is truly honorable is not only found in this relationship between the young and the old, but also between males and females citizens and civic officers, and even the honor that we show to guests who arrive in your home. Have you ever thought about the honor that you show to guests? Uh, Scripture talks about a special honor that we need to show to those who are guests in our home. Uh, And you wonder why? Because they may be inferiors who are coming into your home. It doesn't matter. You still show great honor to these guests And the answer to the why is simply, God loves this. God loves hospitality. He wants us to have uh, this kind of a a, a countercultural culture within uh, within our churches. I was doing a little bit of uh, study on uh, the various passages that have honor, and there's no way I can bring up all of the passages in the sermon this morning, but I looked at the passage where Abraham had three visitors, who later turned out to be angels, But three visitors coming to Abraham's tent, and as soon as Abraham saw these visitors there, he immediately went and uh, extended hospitality to them. And despite the fact that Abraham was a mighty man, he commanded an army, quite a large army actually. Uh, He was not a a commoner in any uh, sense or fashion, and yet despite the fact he was a highly respected leader, Genesis 18, 2 through 5 says that as soon as Abraham saw these three visitors before his tent, quote, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts, and after that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And when they agreed... It says, so Abraham hurried. Notice that word, hurried. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And then they enthusiastically extended hospitality to these three strangers. Now it may be that Abraham prophetically knew that they were angels, and so that's why he was so excited. But you see this kind of thing pervasively through the Scripture that uh, there is this desire, this great a uh, sense of, of honor that they have that they can extend hospitality to visitors. It was an incredible privilege. We need to disciple our children in a biblical concept of honor where honor is due. And by the way, not everybody is due any honor. Uh, you'll see in your bulletins, I think it's the top uh, right-hand picture there, there's a meme that... Uh, Uh, says, the hoary head, and that's simply the King James for the gray-headed or the silver-haired, the hoary head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. That's the way the King James Version, the New King James Version translated. Not all are to be honored. It says, um, the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. By the way, just as a side note, I would encourage you guys to make it a a habit in your life for your children to read a chapter of Proverbs every day and to report back to you at least one verse that the Spirit of God has quickened to their heart that they want to apply. Just sharing with you what the Spirit has opened their eyes to. Uh, Reading through the Proverbs, if you do it on a regular basis, you cannot help but begin to develop within your home a Christian counterculture. It is a transformational book, very, very uh, important uh, book to be getting into. But what does it mean to honor a person? How should it be expressed? One of the few places where our culture still retains some semblance of honor is in the courtroom, and everybody has to rise when the judge comes in, and uh, they are in real trouble if they show any disrespect to that judge. Uh, Scott Polsky, for those of you who are visitors, he's not a member here, but he's uh, a friend of many people in this congregation. Scott Polsky one time told me 
that he's really nervous. Um, he has to mind his P's and his Q's when he is in the courtroom, and especially if the judge motions to them to approach the bench. He doesn't know if he's in trouble or not. Why would there be this sense of awe and reverence of the judge? Because this is still a remnant in our society that it is expected that you revere the judge. It is expected that you show honor uh, to that judge. So I want you to keep that word picture in your mind as we look at some of the other forms of honor that the Scripture talks about. It might help you to get a little bit of a feel for what God is calling us to. Now, by the way, there are judges that you should disagree with. Uh, no problem disagreeing with their judgments, but how to do so respectfully. And I think that the modern church uh, does not have good guidelines to teach us on how to do that. We need to go back to the old paths, you know, of the Puritans and of other eras. Now, while today's sermon won't give you everything that it could give, I hope it'll spur your thinking on a good kind of preferential treatment that can be given to women, especially older women, to officers in the church, <clears throat> officers in the state, and to others in authority. Do not assume that your children will automatically pick up on this and automatically... In fact, you can assume the opposite. In our ultra-egalitarian society, it is almost guaranteed your children will not automatically be respectful unless you are very systematically and deliberately discipling them on these principles. For example, do your children know the proper way to address an envelope or a letter to the president, to a senator, or to a congressman. There's different protocols for each three. You cannot address them all the same way. Uh, most people that you ask this question, they don't have a clue. Now, you, all you have to do is go on the web, and they'll tell you exactly how you what the protocols are. But these are forms of etiquette, uh, uh, of respect, that we can give to those who are in office. Now, I've copied on the somewhere on your uh, outline, it's in a box, Larger Catechism 126 to 128, and that, that's just to give you some further guidance on things beyond what I'm even going to be teaching you this morning, and if you have a really, really good edition of the Larger Catechism, you're going to have all of the Scripture references fully, the whole text of the Scripture written out below. I highly recommend you get that. Um, Reading through the larger catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments, wow, it is humbling. I mean, it, I've never had a time when I've gone through that where I've not been brought to tears at my lack of conformity to the law of God and crying out for more grace for the Lord to sanctify me. It is incredible. I highly recommend that as an exercise every once in a while to go through the larger catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments. Now this morning I'm not going to stick to the honor that we show to an elderly man or a woman. I'm going to broaden the scope of the sermon with other scriptures. And I'm going to start by reading some sample scriptures. First one shows God's judgment of dishonor. This one is in 2 Kings chapter 2. It's a powerful passage. If you have ever been tempted to laugh at or mock an officer who represents God, then keep this passage in mind. 2 Kings 2 23 through 25. Speaking of Elisha, it says, Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. This was a large group of juvenile delinquents, probably not, uh, you know, just uh, Dominion's uh, young people out for a Sabbath scro uh, stroll. Um, peer pressure, you know, made, made them do some bad things here. But this is not an issue of personal vengeance or a, an issue where Elisha was um, uh, trying to maintain some honor for himself. This is a message of inspiration. This is God's attitude. God was speaking through his, his uh, servant, Elisha, and uh, saying he did not like, he did not appreciate this lack of respect for office. 
or for authority. And a second thing we see in this passage is that honor is not simply a cultural thing. Every culture struggles with it. There are some people who like to write off passages like this and say, oh yeah, that was, that was for their culture back then. And I'm saying, no, in every age this has been an anti-cultural thing. Why? Because it goes contrary to our flesh. We don't naturally do the kinds of things that are implied in this passage. No, that, that culture had gone very bad, just like our culture had gone bad, and God had to instruct them. Now for our second reading, if you would turn to Job 32... This, this was the beginning of the speech by Elihu. He was the only one of Job's friends who um, was not rebuked by the Lord. In fact, a lot of his advice is repeated by the Lord later on uh, in the book. So don't write this off and say, oh yeah, this is just one of Job's bad counselors. No, this was a good counselor that was giving good counsel to him. So it's Job 32 and uh, we'll begin at verse 4, and let me just mention a problem that came up for this Elihu, and it's a problem that a lot of young people today just do not understand, do not appreciate. Elihu was considerably younger than Job. Now, obviously, he was an adult. In fact, I believe that he and all the other counselors were civic officers within the country of Eden, just like Job was the highest officer within the uh, country of Eden. A number of commentaries hold to that, but... Elihu would have had an inferior office. And this passage shows that honoring the elderly and honoring civil magistrates does not always mean that you agree with them. He disagrees with Job and very boldly explains why he disagrees with Job, but he does so in a very respectful way. First of all, he waited until the others had opportunity to talk. He was not the first one to spout off. Younger ones should know when it's appropriate to speak and when it's not appropriate to speak. And I think some of our young people are clueless on the etiquette of conversation. This is something you guys need to study. They're not the first ones that should hijack a conversation. Anyway, let me read verses 4 through 12, Job 32, 4 through 12. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitudes of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. So this speech shows a very respectful way of disagreeing. Even though he had righteous anger, and I think it was appropriate for him to have wrath, to have righteous anger, because these uh, counselors had been misapplying the law of God in a grievous way, and Job had begun, through bitterness of heart, to speak against God. So uh, he was, uh, had righteous anger, and yet he expressed it in a very respectful way, honoring those who were older than him. Now the last passage, and this is the one I'm going to preach from, is uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 32. So turn back there and read one more time. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am Jehovah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to apply this more broadly than just to the elderly, but I think we can see that it at least teaches that God wants you to serve him by honoring and revering the elderly. I think that much is obvious, but even on that level, without the applications I'm going to be making, this is a radical rebuke to our modern culture. It is so countercultural. <clears throat> Today, youth is idealized and people fear getting old. And while there are health issues with aging, this passage gives us the standard, the motive, and the goal of respect that we should show to those who are above us. 
So this is one of my ultra, ultra rare Tom Penning sermons. It's a three-point sermon, you know? It doesn't even have 24 sub-points, okay? It's, it, this is really hard on me. This is painful, but I can do it. I wanted to show you I could do it, okay? Three-point sermon. First, the standard. And the standard is simply the command. It says, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. Now, I want to try to unravel the implications of this command or this standard under three subheadings. The meaning of the word honor, the posture of honor, and the presence of honor. That's all under point number one, the standard. This is going to be the longest point. And let's look first of all at the meaning of the word honor. The Hebrew, hadar, is the same word that is used in verse 15. And I want you to look down at verse 15, <clears throat> because interestingly, in verse 15, hadar is prohibited. It is forbidden. Okay, And I think by examining the context in which hadar is forbidden, it helps us to appreciate the hadar or the honor that is commanded in verse 32. Verse 15 says, you shall not do injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor, so there's the word hadar, nor honor the person of the mighty. Now the parallelism between honor and partiality you will see several times in the scripture. They are synonyms, but more importantly, contrasting verse 15 with verse 32 shows that what is forbidden in the courtroom is commanded outside of the courtroom. That's important to understand. What is forbidden or prohibited in the courtroom is commanded outside the courtroom. And to further define what is forbidden in the courtroom, it's helpful to know that the same term hadar is translated as partiality in Exodus 23, verse 3, which says, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So when it comes to judgment in a court of law, a judge is not to show hadar to any person. He is not to treat any person differently, whether he is young or old, whether he is a magistrate or a commoner, whether he is male or female, it makes utterly no difference. And in the ancient world, this would have been a radical commandment. It would have been so hard. They're going to say, what? Are you saying that the judge should not bow down to the king if he were to be tried in the court? Yes, that's exactly what it's saying. There are no distinctions within a court of law. So both sides of the equation of Adar or honor are countercultural in at least some uh, cultures. Now, verse 15 indicates that all who are being judged are equal in the courtroom, but according to verse 32, they are not all equal outside of the courtroom. What is prohibited in verse 15 is commanded in verse 32. I just want you to be clear on that. That's, that's very important for understanding this verse. Verse 32 is commanding us not to treat all people equally. He's commanding us to be preferential, to show partiality to certain people. Outside the court, there are superiors and there are inferiors. Though we all have equal rights before the law and before the throne of God, we are not to treat others equally in our social relationships. So that's exactly what God is commanding. This is a direct rebuke to modern egalitarianism that tries to level all distinctions. Now, you've probably run across many, many examples of this. Just in your reading, you know, on, on the web, wherever you read your news, uh, in, in the last year. In the past few years, many religious homosexuals have been saying that because Christ has obliterated, Galatians, you know, says in Christ there is neither male nor female, that it would be wrong to treat homosexual marriages as wrong because you're saying, you're, you're refusing to obliterate that distinction between male and female. They claim all male-female distinctions are obliterated. And we say in the courtroom, yes. Before God's throne, obviously, yes. But not in our social relationships. But there are many other ways in which you have seen egalitarianism at work. You've seen it probably in child-centered education, um, not only in, in some schools, but also in some homeschooling situations where children are treated the same as adults. They're taught to treat their adults as peers. That's ungodly. According to the Bible, students are inferiors to teachers socially, not intrinsically, but socially. 
Now, you've seen it in the feminism of our culture that tries to level all distinctions between husband and wife, between men and women and their roles in the church. <clears throat> and I think people intuitively recognize, no, there's got to be some distinctions here. For example, <clears throat> Proverbs 31 says that we are to treat our wives with hadar, with honor. We are to treat our wife with preferential treatment. Now, I think we would recognize, yeah, obviously, we're going to treat our wife differently than we treat other women, but we are to give hadar, honor, to our wife. Uh, there were American cults in the 1800s that realized that to be 100% consistent with their egalitarian philosophy, they had to be radical in obliterating these male-female distinctions. They had to do away with marriage. Some of them were already married when they entered into uh, this cult. And like the radical Anabaptists at the, at the Reformation, they realized no man can own a wife and no wife can own a man. Everybody is married to everybody in that cult. It was incredibly ungodly, but it was just a, a logical trajectory of their egalitarianism. Now, modern so-called Christian homosexuals, there is no such thing. If you're homosexual, you're not a Christian by definition, biblically. But modern people who claim to be Christian homosexuals, Christian transgenders, have taken that one step further and they have said, well, it's not just everybody married to each other, male and female. We've got to obliterate all these distinctions. This is I'm bringing these things up to show this is not an issue that's tangential, that is, you know, immaterial, whether I believe what is being preached here or not. This is at the heart of our faith. This is at the heart of what it means to reestablish a Christian civilization. There will always be distinctions in our social relationships somewhere, and God is not pleased when all social distinctions are removed. Isaiah 3, verse 5 speaks of the horrible state of a nation when a child will be insolent to an elder, God hates that, he says, and when the base are insolent toward the honorable. Proverbs 30 indicates that there are four things that make the earth perturbed. Now, any time the whole earth is perturbed and cannot stand up under the weight of this thing, you better be paying attention to what is going on because this is important to God. So he says there's four things by which the earth is perturbed and it puts things out of disorder and all four things relate to this issue of superiors and inferiors. When those are removed and there is a dishonoring of these social distinctions that God has set in place, it is perturbing. So it's a huge deal for God in the book of Proverbs. So in verse 15, distinctions are obliterated before the throne of God, before a court of law, but nowhere else. A judge may never show hadar to a king, to a woman, to a man, to a poor person, to anyone else. And by the way, just as a side note, this is why, and some people buck against this idea, but this is why it is perfectly justified for a church session to bring charges against a woman, to bring evidence against her, to try her in accord, give her a fair trial, and to excommunicate her without her husband's permission. Why? Because the Bible commands us in the courtroom to not give preferential treatment to anyone. They are all equal before the law. It is an of necessity it has to be that way within a court situation. Psalm 45 translates this honor that we give to the king as majesty. There is a respect that we give to the king that we do not give to any others. And I dare say that we as a congregation have sometimes failed to give this majesty or respect or hadar to ruling officials. We need to learn that. Now, it's okay to disagree with them. It's even okay to be angry like uh, Elihu was, but we still need to show that respect when we are motivated by our anger to resist tyranny and ungodliness. So point A is the meaning of a dog or a honor. Let's look second at the posture of honor. The verse says, you shall rise before the gray-headed. Now this means getting up off of your chairs and greeting an aged person when he approaches you. He's not saying, you know, every time you see 
a gray-headed person coming through those doors, the whole congregation stands up. That's not what he's saying. The literal Hebrew is before the face. It's talking about somebody who is literally coming up to your chair to talk to you. You don't just sit there while he's standing above you. You stand up, you shake his hand, you invite him to sit, you know. Uh, this is exactly what it's talking about. So that's the idea. And I think it's worth asking the question, now if the command to honor the elderly is a universal command, what about the rising? Maybe that's cultural. Maybe that's not a universal thing. Uh, there are some Christians that liken this to foot washing, and they say, you know, back then you had to wash feet because feet got dirty. Now we got boots on. Well, some of you have shoes on, but um, and we don't get dirty feet. So it's just a cultural thing. Is that the case? Uh, it, some people say, you know, I honor the elderly in other ways. And by the way, they don't even want me to stand when they approach me. So I don't think that would be very honoring to them if I, if I ignore their desires concerning honor. And it's a legitimate question. But I want you to notice three things about this passage. First, this is a command, not a suggestion. Secondly, we've already seen that the word honor or hadar means that we are indeed to treat them differently, whether they want to be treated differently or not. That is immaterial. This is respecting God and his desires, not other people's desires. We must treat them differently. And then third, God wouldn't even have to give this command if this was a cultural norm. This is one of the things that many people who give the cultural argument forget. Why did God have to command them to rise before the age? Because they weren't doing it. They had a lousy, ungodly culture, and Moses was trying to transform them into a Christian culture. And so the cultural argument is not as strong as it may seem at first to be. But this issue of rising to express honor was not just used in the Bible for inferiors to superiors. Interestingly, it is used for every expression of honor, including superiors to inferiors. Let me give you a scripture. Proverbs 31. The exact same Hebrew words are used in Proverbs 31, and surprisingly, they're used to speak of rising before an inferior in certain circumstances and rising before a superior to honor them. Very, very interesting. Passage indicates in verse 25 that women should be clothed in honor clothed in hadar. In other words, she should be honorable. We're not talking about honoring just anybody and everybody. Some people are not worthy of honor. A wench who is constantly in rebellion, who is the loudmouth that Proverbs talks about, Proverbs does not honor that person. So we're talking about an honorable woman, but the Proverbs 31 woman is definitely an honorable woman. And it says in verse 28 that... Um, Every member of the family should rise to give her honor. So it's not just an issue related to office or authority. Verse 28 says, Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Now the word for rise up is exactly the same word that's used in Leviticus 19.32 for stand up. Okay, so again, this is, this is an interesting twist on that, that subject. The husband is the one who is in authority over the wife, and yet the passage says the husband rises up before her. This is one of many passages that were used to transform pagan civilization in Europe into what we now think of as older Western civilization, Christian civilization. And um, it's just an aspect of Western chivalry. So... Uh, it's not just a weird custom to rise when a woman approaches your chair. West got that idea from the Bible. By the way, it just looks weird when you're sitting in a chair and a woman comes up to your table and, you know, your head's at the level of her navel and you're talking to her for 20 minutes. Ridiculous. Get up, shake her hand, you know, honor her and say, why don't you have a seat here? And, and if you can't, you're having a private conversation. There's ways in which you can... Uh, say, oh, I'd love to be able to talk with you. We're having a private conversation right now. Maybe we can get back to you later. There are ways in which you can uh, deal with the awkward uh, situations that arise. So we've seen that we're commanded to rise for the elderly. Husbands are shown how to honor their wives. Children are shown how to honor their mothers. It includes praise, but it also includes rising for her, just like Leviticus 19 calls for us to rise for the elderly. Scripture also calls children to honor their fathers. Uh, interestingly, 
In Genesis 31, 25, we have a grown lady who's already married, so context, I think, is important, already married, and yet she is expected to rise before her father when her father approaches her chair. Now, she didn't have to rise when he just came into the room. But as he approached her chair, this is the father of Rebecca, and I won't tell you the whole story there, but in Genesis 31, Rachel apologizes to her dad that she can't stand as she normally would have stood when he approached her because she was going through her monthly period, and he, in effect, says, okay, I, I totally understand, no problem. Genesis 37, verse 7, speaks of both standing and bowing as ways of honoring a civil magistrate. Job 29, verse 8, is similar. That is a passage which shows even aged men standing to honor Job, who was the highest civil magistrate in Eden. At least that's what James Jordan and I and quite a number of other commentaries believe. It says, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. There's that standing again. Nehemiah 8, verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, there are several scriptures which speak of standing to honor the Word of God when the Word of God is being read. Okay, I'm giving these different scriptures just so that you can see this idea of rising as an expression of honor is not just one passage. You know, Leviticus 19.32 is not just a one-off passage. How do we honor Scripture? By standing. How do we honor God? Scripture says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, I hasten to say there are other good postures for, um, uh, for worship, just like what you're doing right now, sitting during the preaching of the Word. Um, and the same is true of our relationships with older men and women. You don't have to stand for the whole time that you're around them. It's just a short, quick way of greeting them, acknowledging them. Then you can call them all to sit down. That's why we begin our service by the call to worship. You all stand in that call to worship. That's similar to the initial standing when approached by a man or a woman who should be honored. And then you go ahead and you sit down in their presence, just like we all sit in God's presence, you know, comfortable. Before God, we are part of his family. We can be comfortable with those that we honor. So when a person approaches your chair to talk to you, the polite thing is to, after standing and shaking their hand, to welcome that person to sit down and join you, or for the senior officer to say, why don't you go ahead and sit? It depends on the context, okay, of uh, when that happens. And if you don't want them to join you, uh, there are ways of handling those awkward situations. Well, I want to drill just a bit deeper. We might ask, why does the Scripture call for us to stand for the elderly? And I'm not sure I can give every possible reason out there, but let me suggest one that I think has a bearing in every culture. I think one reason that there should be a physical act of honor is that there is such a close connection between our bodies and our spirits that our body's posture will influence our spirit's attitude. And God wants our bodies to be consistent with our spirit's desire. And there are all kinds of examples you could give of how our bodies sometimes say the exact opposite of what our spirits are wanting to say. You know, we're wanting to say, we say with, oh, I'm not bored, as your hands are drumming impatiently upon the, the table, you know. Your body language might communicate something different. When you tell your wife, ah, oh, you gaze into her eyes, I love you so much. It's a little bit different when you plop down on a seat and turn on the TV and say, I love you, dear. Now, the second is appropriate. You don't have to do the first all the time, right? Second is appropriate, but each one has a slightly different nuance. All I'm saying is that our bodies need to line up with what our spirits are trying to say. And often our bodily posture will even affect our attitudes. My prayer is instantly transformed when I get on my knees before Almighty God. It instantly creates in my spirit a sense of humility, a sense of God's majesty that transforms even the way that I pray. When I pray standing with my hands up, usually when I'm rejoicing in God, the standing makes a difference as well. We Westerners tend to try to divide between the body and the spirit, which is really a Gnostic concept. It really is. And even if it is possible, I'm not sure it is possible. I think what happens is our spirits don't uh, coincide with what we're saying. Uh, just as an example, if you're reading through the confessions of sin, 
and you're slouched there in the chair, sipping your coffee, and saying you're confessing your sin, I'm thinking, really? You're confessing your sin? Your body says the exact opposite. Now, you may not intend it, and maybe your spirit is truly confessing your sin, but we've got to learn to make our bodies line up with our spirits. And here is the problem. People will respond in our culture, especially in the last 50 years, this bodily posture is no longer meaningful. And they will say, why would I engage in a physical posture that is no longer meaningful to other people? I think it's a legitimate question to, to, to ask. But here's my response. I don't think that what is meaningful to the secular culture should dictate what happens in the church culture. That, that's how I would respond to that. And I think that that objection is not really analyzing the why. Why is the secular culture no longer find this rising to be meaningful? Now, in the courtroom, you'll see the rising is still meaningful. But the reason they don't find it meaningful is because they don't find hadar, honor, meaningful at all. They have obliterated in our egalitarian society any of the reasons to have a bodily or a inward uh, posture of, of, um, of honor. So on many levels of life, we must develop a Christian counterculture. We, we, we must do so in our speech, in our dress, in our priorities, in almost everything that we do. We've got to consistently be asking, Lord, is there anything in your word that says how I need to be changing in these areas of my life? I think it'd be worthwhile to dwell some on how the elderly were treated in the Bible. Many, many Old Testament examples that could be given. Let me just give you one New Testament example. 1 Timothy 5 verse 1 indicates that we cannot speak to an older person in the same way that we might speak to one who is our own age. And that seems strange to our egalitarian culture, but it says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, of course, that assumes that you treat your fathers with respect, right? Do you treat your fathers with respect? So do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters. By the way, parents, let me admonish you on this. That same verse implies that you need to allow your children to disagree with you. You can't be just a blind obedience, blind submission. They have to be able to express disagreement in a respectful way, yes, like Elihu did, but they have to have some mechanism in place, and we tried to teach our kids, when you want to appeal to our bad decision, you know, of authority, here's the mechanism that you go through, and we would respectfully listen to their disagreement, and if we still disagreed with them, okay, we'd make the final decision, but they at least had the mechanism by which they would be able to interact with us. And, you know, there were times when I was convinced, you know, what I said was out of line. And I respectfully said, thank you for challenging what I said. They've got to be able to have this. This is a two-way street. We're not just getting on the young. We're getting on the old as well. This is a cultural transformation that needs to take place in our lives. Several years ago, our church watched a video on the law of God that had R.J. Rushdoony talking on it a bit, and I was surprised to see some of our own people making fun of how slowly that he talked. Okay, they were actually mocking his speech. This is the antithesis of honoring the elderly. They were speaking disrespectfully of him, not because they disagreed with what he was saying. They totally agreed with what he was saying. No, it was specifically his uh, his weakness and his uh, older years, the way he spoke that was being mocked. And of course, I addressed it because I thought that was very disrespectful. Let me give you a positive example of how some young people tried to develop a counterculture. I think that the titles of sir and ma'am used in the South are a very healthy way for younger folks to address those who are older than them. I don't think it's mandated. You, don't, you won't find it in the, in the Bible. Well, you might find Lord. You know, that's sort of like sir. But um, so long as your children are doing something outwardly to show respect, 
Uh, that's, that's okay. But he, here's my point of bringing that up. There are people who are saying, this is the way we want our children to honor those who are over them and honor office and things like that. Here's my admonition to the rest of you who disagree. At least don't undermine the parents' attempts to do that or the children's attempts to do that. Now, our text says that there is a posture of honor that God commands. Don't just say, well, nobody else is doing that. That's immaterial. <laughs> they should be doing it. Uh, they don't honor the elderly in any other fashion either. And I think we're too quick to explain away scriptures that might make us feel uncomfortable and change. So I would encourage you to start practicing these little courtesies with your children. Not all old Western customs are worth resurrecting. In fact, a lot of them, I'm glad they've been killed. But I think this one is probably worth resurrecting. So we've seen the meaning of honor, seen the posture of honor, that it should affect the way we do things. God says he doesn't want us to just internalize. He wants us to express with our bodies what we mean. And then the next phrase indicates a third way in which this honor is shown. Honor carries with it the need for presence. Our passage says, honor the presence of an old man. Or as the New American Standard Bible gives the literal rendering in the margin, honor the face of the aged. There needs to be face-to-face communication of honor. So many times parents are shunted off to a nursing home and they never are seen again. And that, I think, is a crying shame. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have nursing homes. Sometimes uh, a medical facility is the only way that you can care for the incredibly needy uh, details of, of aging. But I'm saying we should not abandon them. We need to be visiting the elderly. It's the absence of the elderly that Americans like. They shunt them off to a place where they won't be visible. But this verse says, honor the presence of an old man. In the Mercy Ministries classes for deacons, we looked at several concrete, very specific ways in which we can be in the presence of the elderly. And it's not just our parents, it's the aged in general. And I think this is where nursing home ministry can be such a valuable part of our church uh, outreach. Uh, how many of you here saw Bill Hines' presentation, just a few of you. Okay, we probably need to talk about that because that was incredible. I just really appreciate what Bill, uh, Pastor Bill Hine has been doing in California um, with uh, the nursing ministry, uh, Trulock is it, in that, in that town. And his goal is to, once that is completely self-running, to help other churches set up similar min- ministries elsewhere. This is an incredibly transformational ministry, but I think transformational not just in the nursing home, it's transformational for the people who are ministering in that context. I think this could potentially be uh, one of the, uh, the answers to what we're talking about this morning. Let me make another suggestion that may not otherwise be obvious. Those of you who are in your 20s or 30s may not think of yourselves as old. And you're right. I don't even think of myself as old. You know, I'm only 64. I've got another, what, 40 years to go? Uh, but <laughs> those of you who think of yourselves, okay, I'm only 20 years old. I'm only 30 years old. There are still young children who are your inferiors. The larger catechism would insist that biblically a 30-year-old adult is a superior to a 15-year-old boy. Now, that doesn't mean you act pridefully or that you insist on being respected. I don't think you probably should insist on being respected unless you're a parent, right? Or you're an officer or something like that because it could come across prideful. But let's at least do this. Please do not rebuff the efforts of children to honor you and pour cold water on their newly developing habits. I've heard people absolutely refuse to receive the titles of sir or ma'am. Please don't do that. You are undermining the attempts of parents to instill honor. Now, you may have taught your children different ways of showing respect. That's fine, so long as they are showing respect. But don't insist that a young child use your first name if the parents have instructed them that that's disrespectful. Now, in some contexts, there's ways of getting around that, and we've had a compromise. You know, some people say, well, I I just don't feel comfortable calling you Fred. Can I call you Uncle Fred? (laughs) Okay, that's a title of respect too, right? Uncle Fred, or something like that. 
But don't undermine these attempts. And it's hard to develop a Christian counterculture. And the more of these rebukes, don't do that. The more you do that, the, the, the more difficult it will be. And I'm the first one to, to admit I am not consistent on this. Phil Kaiser has, uh, Pastor Kaiser, here, here I go, you know, it's my first name. <laughs> Pastor Kaiser has uh, failed on this. How many times in the past year have there been young people who have asked me questions? They have addressed me very respectfully, very properly as Pastor Kaiser, and I sign my name Phil. And as I'm going through this sermon and preparing for this, I'm realizing, you know what? It's subtle. I'm trying to be humble, but I'm undermining the attempts of these children to honor and respect my office. And here I am being a hypocrite. And I'm not even living out the scriptures on this thing. So I'm saying we're all in this together. It is so hard to maintain a balance when you're in a culture that is fighting against everything you're attempting to do. So we can hold ourselves you know, mutually accountable on this. And let me say this too. Those of us who are superiors, and I've got superiors above us, it, it, it's a good thing to know your pecking order in any assembly. There are places where I keep quiet. You know, I put, a, put my hand over my mouth because there's wiser men than me that are there. But we should be approachable, we should be humble, we should not be tough to talk to, we should not be stiff or haughty. So, again, it's going to be hard to maintain these kinds of balances and have the humility and yet be trying to teach that there is this thing that the larger catechism talks about of superiors and inferiors. Another example, if you're offered a seat on a bus or if someone rises at your presence and holds the door open to you, don't offend them, I, I say, don't be offended, I should say, by refusing to take that, as if your dignity is being taken away. I don't know how many times I've tried to honor somebody, getting up, giving them a seat, or opening a door, and they have rebuked me. It's just been, you know, it's, it's been like um, their dignity or their independence has been taken away. Don't get in a huff uh, when people do that. Be appreciative of the attempt to fulfill the mandate rather than trying to erase distinctions that God intends to be highlighted. God wants there to be a distinction between those who are young and immature, those who are aged and mature. So we've looked at the standard or the command. Let's look next at the motive for obeying this command. Verse 32 says, and fear your God. Pretty simple. The motive for doing this has nothing to do with whether other people want it or not. Uh, it has nothing to do with trying to build good relationships. It has everything to do with standing in the fear and reverence of God. In fact, when you compare in the Hebrew the parallelism that is there, the indication commentators indicate is the degree to which you fear God, you're going to be upholding this fear and reverence of those who are in authority and to the degree that, to which you do not show reverence and fear to those who are in authority, you do not fear God. That is very clear in the text. In fact, uh, Christ makes a big deal about this in Mark chapter 7, where he discusses honor for parents. He says this, Those people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he's saying they profess honor, but their actions show dishonor. And what's he going to be dealing with? He's going to be dealing with the commandment, uh, fifth commandment. And I'm going to read that to you. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And, oh boy, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, they're saying, this is the Pharisees' way of getting inheritance, you know, taking away from parents and giving to them, getting to make a vow. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So the culture of Israel had thrown off the honor that God expected to have for parents within their culture, and Jesus says... We're going to do a Christian counterculture. We're going back to the law of God. We're going to start all over again on this issue. Now, I suspect some of you, when I read that passage, were shocked at Christ's words. 
absolutely flabbergasted that Jesus would say that if you as a child curse your parents, you are deserving of the death penalty. Why? Because we are saturated in an egalitarian society. We do not understand how God values this so much. He would put the death penalty upon the violation of this law. It is foreign to us. But all that means is we desperately need God's grace so that we can think God's thoughts after him, love the things he loves, hate the things that he hates. It may very well be that you have neglected God's social laws respecting honor of those who are older than them. A shallow reverence for parents will produce a shallow reverence for God. It's just one of the things Jesus is saying. There is a relationship between the two. Any society that fails to honor God will eventually fail to honor the elderly and vice versa. It is guaranteed. Let me just use an example of that. I grew up in Ethiopia. Uh, My parents were missionaries there for 30 years. And I was blown away as a child because the missionaries didn't always model that. But these Ethiopians took these passages very, very seriously. And they would always bow before someone who was older than them, the gray-headed. They showed great respect for each other. But in 1975, the communists took over Ethiopia, and immediately one of the first mandates that they gave was that no one could show any signs of respect for age, such as rising or bowing before an older person. In fact, they deliberately took magistrates and older people, gray-headed people, and they would force them to obey arbitrary commands from little kids. They were very deliberately trying to break down this structure. This is the kind of thing that R.J. Rushdoony was saying, that communism goes hand in hand with this lack of respect for the elderly. They want to obliterate this. Satan wants to obliterate these distinctions in the social order. So it's not surprising that the Eskimos used to practice euthanasia of the elderly. It's not surprising that America is heading in that direction very, very fast. It is a byproduct of egalitarianism of which feminism, homosexuality, and transgenderism are simply three radical expressions of, but it's just a trajectory. This is, this is serious stuff, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 6 verse 1 gives both the positive and the negative side to this honoring of parents. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment which, with promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. You want it to go well with you? Well, take seriously this whole area of the honor we show to those who are in authority. It is such an important thing. So he, he talks in the New Testament, there's blessings, there's cursings. There's blessings, there's cursings. Scripture says that societal disintegration happens when honor for each other is lost. And this honor doesn't have to just be between the generations or between the sexes. There needs to be honor for office and between office. Let me just illustrate how, you know, we should not just admire uh, people from our founding fathers. Our founding fathers had big, gaping, blind spots in their lives. John Randolph and Henry Clay were examples of the violation of this law. And there were many others who violated this law in the 1700s. They had a quarrel in the Senate in Washington Randolph refused to talk to Clay for several weeks. One day they saw each other coming down to down a narrow sidewalk. And when Randolph got close, he stood his ground and he said, I never turn out for scoundrels. Mr. Clay politely stepped in the mud and said, I always do. <laughs> and their quarrel continued. It was not a soft answer, you know. Their quarrel continued. But that was an age in which personal honor many times outweighed honor for others. I'm not exaggerating. This was the age of duels. You slap me in the face, we're going to have a pistol duel. One of us is going to die. That's how seriously they took their personal honor. And scripture says, no, go to the opposite extreme. If you're one who thinks you should be in a position to be honored, let yourself be dishonored rather than taking the opposite extreme. So there's, there's a balance in here that is so tough for people Uh, people to to have. Now, uh, one of the duels was between Hamilton and Burr. And Hamilton, if I read the story correctly, did not want the duel, but he felt he would rather die than be disgraced by not doing the duel. So that was just as bad as well. 
He valued his own honor more than he valued his life. That's not a biblical way uh, to think about this. While we should teach our children this honor, we cannot pridefully be defending our own honor. Malachi 4.6 predicted that this is exactly what would happen in Christ's kingdom. It says that when there is a rift between the generations, God will strike the earth with a curse. Now, when you look at the timing of what that's about, it's talking about striking the earth with a curse in Christ's kingdom era. This is relevant. This is relevant for today. But he said he sent his messenger to solve that. Now, again, it shows the importance of this. It's not a tangential issue. You cannot say, oh, this is just a quaint, you know, cute idea that Pastor Kaiser has come up with. No, this is at the heart of Christianity. I, I think that Dr. Moorcraft was right. When you start erasing this, you are completely erasing a Christian culture. Completely erasing it. Anyway, God's goal in Malachi 4, 6 was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers. So that's the end of the English Bible. 2 Chronicles 36, 17, which is the end of the Hebrew canon, does exactly the same thing. It describes the ungodliness of a nation that had no compassion on the aged and the weak. Now, what does that say about our nation that kills the babies before they've even exited the womb and uh, that kills people in the nursing homes when their insurance money runs out? And if you don't think that happens, you are not awake. It happens all over the states. I can give you the names and specifics of it happening here in Omaha. We have tried everything we could do to stop the euthanasia, including involving lawyers and others. It happens. It happens. Very pervasive problem, and I think Bill Hines' nursing home ministry may be a potential key to accomplishing this. And he said, by the way, he's willing to train us in it. Isaiah 3, 4 through 5, portrays the breakdown that had occurred between the elderly and the young as a result of God's judgment. And it says, I will give children to be their princes. Bad thing. Babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. And then Isaiah in that chapter shows how every other area of social structure was breaking down. When you break any one of the links in a chain, what that chain is holding up is going to fall right? Well, this is one of the chain uh, links in the chain of what God wants as a Christian civilization, what he wants in our social orders. And uh, if it is missing, if we fail to honor the elderly ladies, officers, and magistrates, it is going to be disastrous. Now, our motive ultimately is not to avoid disaster in America. Our motive ultimately is just to please God, reverence and respect for God. Now, the last thing I want to look at very, very briefly is the goal. The verse ends by pointing to the goal to glorify God by his grace. It says simply, I am the Lord, or literally, I am Jehovah. That phrase occurs 14 times in this chapter as a continual reminder that God is the goal and pattern for our holiness. But he's also the supplier of our holiness. The reason I say he's the supplier is the name Lord is all capital letters is Jehovah. That's the covenant name that always points to his redemption. So it's only by grace that this command can properly be fulfilled. Christ is the one who can restore all our broken relationships. Sin has ruined the relationship between the young and the elderly, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross was intended to take away that sin. That is why we can pray with absolute confidence. We're praying the will of God when we pray, Lord, help me to be a respectful authority and help those who are under us to be respectful inferiors. Help the social order, at least within our church, to begin to be improved. Now, here it says that we are to be holy because he is holy, and we're to be holy just as he is holy. And you might think in your mind, well, if we're to imitate God, how on the earth does that work? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal. Well, that's true. In terms of their essential being, ontology, ontological trinity is what they call it. Yes, they are equal. But in terms of their relationship, their roles with each other, they are not equal. The Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. And um, the Son honors the Father, and the Spirit honors the, the, the Father. Interestingly, just as 
men, husbands, are to rise to honor their wives when their wives approach them. I don't think you have to do this all day long, okay? But uh, there are times where it's appropriate. But just as there was an honor shown to the wife, God the Father, even though the Son is in submission to him, God the Father honors the Son and expects everyone to honor the Son. It's just, it's just marvelous. So I would say, yes, we are to imitate the Trinity in how these social structures are related. The, the, the very Trinitarian theology governs what society should look like, what the church should look like, what our families should look like. And so this morning, if you have realized that you come short, I want you to ask God to cleanse you of your sin by the blood of Christ, to give you the grace to be able to honor each other as the Trinity honors the, stink, the distinctions within the role relationships of the Godhead. And I want you to believe that he truly is glorified and you're doing that, even if everybody else thinks you're weird. Be weird for Christ. It's okay. And let's remind each other about that. I, I've been so affected by my culture, it doesn't come naturally to me. I give you permission to remind me if I fail to honor the elderly in some way. Now, one of the habits, this is not commanded in the Bible, okay? But one of the habits that I want to redevelop is opening my car door for my wife every day. So if you see me not doing that, remind me about it, okay? But uh, I want us to grow in all of this. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a very difficult topic to think through, and I pray that you would help us to do so prayerfully, scripturally, to not get legalistic about it, to not get all bound up and whether we're messing with it, but just realize that we are secure in your Son, secure in your grace, and as Kevin Swanson so frequently says, direction, not perfection. Help us, Father, to be moving forward in the direction of developing a Christian counterculture in our church. And may you be pleased with our efforts, however faltering they may be, and some of our efforts may be bumbling. But Father, receive it, just like we receive the artwork of our little youngsters that maybe is not great, but we can see the love behind it. Father, we want to express our love to you, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of these things when we fail and uh, help us uh, to reflect the fear of you and the way in which we uh, reverence and respect others. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. That speaks of the incredible authority that's been given to the Lord Jesus Christ.